Let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, as we have just sung, we pray again as we always do before we come to your word because we're dependent on your spirit to enlighten us. God, we need ears that hear. We need eyes that see. And so we ask now that you would give us that, that we might live for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you don't have to raise your hand. But who here struggles with procrastination? It is tax season, after all. Now, procrastination, it can depend on the task, but I think it's a fairly universal temptation. But just as bad, if not worse than procrastinating, is starting a task and leaving it unfinished. The lot behind our old house was a, a total eyesore for eight years because it was covered in plywood. Now, is there anything in your life like that? Some task left unfinished. When you meet God one day, will you be able to say that you did all that he called you to do? Now, as you think about that, don't think about your unique calling or purpose, because that might not be something you're even sure of. And our culture tends to make a bigger deal out of that than, than I think we, we should. We all have a big calling to bring God glory with our lives. And some of us might be putting that off because we're concentrating on ourselves, maybe completely. But if you're a Christian, God has given you a blueprint. He's given the church blueprints on how to bring Him glory in all areas of our life. And there's one task that He's given us that's specific to his own building project. Jesus gives it to us in Matthew 28. He says, make disciples of all nations. So how can we be faithful to the task and finish our part in that? Well, thankfully, we've got a good example in Scripture in the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 1008. 1008, and if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. Now, as a reminder, Paul summarizes the good news about Jesus in the first 11 chapters. He says that even though we've all rebelled against God and deserve his wrath, Jesus has come to live a perfect life on our behalf and then die on the cross to suffer the penalty for our sin. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And in Christ, we're free from sin's tyranny, we're alive to God, we're adopted into his family, and we're promised eternal life in his presence. And that's what Paul calls the Christian faith. 
But part of Paul's goal in writing this letter is to advance the obedience of faith. So in chapters 12 through 15, he describes true worship in the life of a Christian. It's a life that's lived in view of God's mercy. Our lives are an offering to him, a living sacrifice. Which means we use the spiritual gifts that he's given us in service to the church. It means loving others, even our enemies, just as Christ loved us. It means fulfilling our obligations to Jesus in every area of our lives... And it means maintaining unity in the body of Christ. This kind of faith-filled obedience brings glory to God. And it has a missional effect. Because as others see our lives, it invites them to join with us in praising God. So, Paul has finished his great exposition of the faith. He's finished his great exhortation to the obedience of faith. And now... It's time to get personal. This last part of the letter of Romans really comes across as a letter to the church in Rome. And in it, we get to see Paul's heart and his aim as an apostle. So if you look down at verse 16, he says, My purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering. And verse 20, My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. Paul's fulfilling the task at hand. And he wants the church in Rome to become a partner in the work. And it's the same message for our church today. Work for gospel fruit in your church and beyond. Work for gospel fruit in your church and beyond. If you're taking notes to help you listen and apply this passage, there are three ways that I think we can imitate Paul and be faithful to the task. First, know the call to gospel work. That's in verses 14 through 16. Know the call to gospel work. So if you think about what's God's calling on your life, this is sort of the big call. He's called you to gospel work. Second, Rely on God's power for the work. That's in verses 17 through 19. Rely on God's power for the work. And third, be part of the work. That's in verses 19 through 21. Sort of the second part of 19. Be part of the work. So first, know the call to gospel work. Look at verse 14. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. My purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's telling us right here why he wrote the letter. And since he hasn't been real close to the church in Rome, he doesn't want them to get the wrong impression by what he's written. He isn't writing because he doesn't think they understand the faith or how to live it out. No, he's convinced that they're a healthy church. Yes, it's clear from the rest of what he said that that they've got challenge 
the challenges like everybody else. You know, there are calls for unity throughout the letter. But in general, he commends them. They're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct, or that is, counsel one another. That sounds like a healthy church filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, they're equipped with the truth of God's Word. That's, that's what we're striving for here at Grace Harbor. But even though he's convinced about their health and maturity, verse 15, he's written a reminder for them. That's what Romans is. And you've ever thought about Romans that way, but, but he says it's a reminder. You, know, you might think of Romans for its, for its doctrine, as this huge theological work. And Paul says, I just want to remind you of these things. And we can see why. Because as we come to the end, he's calling for action. He's using all of these things that he's said about the faith and the obedience of faith to, to push them towards the work of missions. You see, we need reminders. Because Satan's ministry of propaganda is constant. And it isn't always about the lies he tells, but the distraction of so many different messages we hear. And so without reminders, we're prone to drift or to spiritual passivity. And so the gospel work comes to a standstill. Spiritual atrophy is real. And Paul knows it can happen to whole churches. And so if, if you've ever been tempted to think, you know, upon hearing something, well, I, I already know that. Or I've already heard that. Well, that's a red flag that you might be on a raft floating towards a gospel-less or a powerless life as a Christian. That kind of thinking really is making the Christian faith all about what you know. But Paul would want to ask, no, for what? It should be knowledge for a greater love of God and His people that, that motivates you to do the work He's called you to. So, while new knowledge might change our direction in life, it's, it's really reminders that stir us up to action and keep us moving in that direction. That's why we regularly gather here, and not just when, when we feel like it. Because we know, from based on Hebrews 10.25, that if we don't come, spiritual atrophy can easily start to set in, and it's going to make it hard to complete the mission like God calls us to. That's the reason for this apostolic reminder. Paul's on mission himself. God has given Paul grace, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. And his purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is language of worship. After God had saved Israel out of Egypt to bring them into the promised land, the, the question was, how can God have a relationship with this sinful people? We know sin deserves His judgment. And the wages of sin is death. There's no way that a holy God can dwell with spiritually unclean sinners. But then God answers everybody's question by graciously giving them the sacrificial system. God temporarily accepted the sacrificial death of an animal on behalf of His people as an offering for their sin. 
There were thanksgiving offerings too, but, but the, the people who brought all of these offerings to God were the priests. They, they served in God's temple so that all the people could come and enjoy God's presence in worship. Well, Paul could have simply just referred to himself here as, as God's servant again. Or he could have referred to himself as God's slave, as he often does. But right here, he, he chooses to use the high, lofty language of service. As a preacher of the gospel, he pictures himself wearing the priestly robes, spending his daily life walking in the midst of God's temple, serving God's people. Because the new temple is the church. It's the body of Christ on earth where God's spirit dwells. And there's no earthly altar or sacrifice for sin to be made anymore in this temple. Because when Jesus offered up his own life as a perfect sacrifice, his blood was a sufficient payment for all our sin. And so the offerings that are brought into the new temple in worship of God are blood-bought repenting sinners who now live in view of God's mercy. Paul, as a priest of the gospel, is bringing people to God. They're the thanksgiving offering. You see, all priestly work surrounding the temple in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so it's reflected now in gospel ministry. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings all of us into fellowship with God through faith and repentance. It's because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we can enjoy his presence and praise him and live for his glory. And so as a priest of the gospel, Paul's priestly work means preaching the faith, chapters 1 through 11, and helping God's people live in obedience to faith, 12 through 15, so that Gentiles can be offered as a living sacrifice to God. That's how he's ending the letter. That's his stated purpose in verse 16. So that Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see, Gentiles were considered unclean in the Old Testament because they worshipped other gods. But Paul's leaning on God's promise from Isaiah 66.20 here. In Isaiah 66, we read about Gentile converts coming in from the nations as an offering to the Lord, and they're made part of the family of God. It's the good news about Jesus that does that. It's through faith in Christ that God considers us righteous. That is, that we're justified or made clean in His sight. And He sets us apart for Himself. Therefore, the way that unclean people become that acceptable offering is through hearing the gospel, believing it, and living it. And this is exactly the kind of work that Paul's calling the church to do. It's to bring good news to sinners and then disciple them in that truth. Guys, God enlists us to do this kind of priestly work. The church is called the priesthood of all believers. Isn't that a wild thought? To think that, that, that you and I can bring people to God as offerings of worship? I mean, that, that's amazing work. 
What is it that you want to do for God? How do you want to serve Him with your life? What is it that you've been trying to offer Him? Whatever it is, don't forget about this work. Jesus is building His church and He does it through us. And based on what we've seen in Romans, that means that we're not just talking about bringing people as offerings, but we're to be offerings ourselves. Our lives should be a living sacrifice. Jesus died in order that you might be an acceptable offering to God. But keep in mind, Paul's also writing the whole church. And he's thinking about that, that church in Rome together as one body. And so there's a sense in which God's examining us as a church. Think about the book of Revelation and the the seven letters to the churches. Where in each case, Jesus is coming to a church and speaking to them corporately. And saying, this is what your church does well, and I commend you for it. However, I have this against you, and you need to repent. Grace Harbor, we want to bring God pleasure by being an acceptable offering and be faithful to what He's called us to do. So if we want the Spirit to be powerfully at work in us as a church so that we're that kind of offering, well, let's just look at what Paul's saying here and doing uh, for this church in this letter. And let's treasure reminders ourselves so that we do this work. More than anything, let's be clear on the gospel and let's be committed to gospel living. And one way to do that is found in verse 14. It's in our ministry to one another. Uh, We ourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Literally, we're we're able to counsel one another. Did you know that the, the Bible expects us to do that? You know, that that we're equipped to do that, that we don't always need to be seeking out a a professional when we need counseling, but that we can look right into the body of Christ to people who have God's word and and get counsel from one another. This is one of the reasons we put such a strong emphasis on gathering with one another under the preaching of God's word. You know, Romans is, is basically an exposition on the Old Testament. And as pastors here, we're, we're, we're trying to follow that example with, with all of God's Word. It's the main thing you should look for in a church and what you should demand from your pastors. And you should get rid of us if we ever stop preaching God's Word. But let's all do this in part because we understand the work. I mean, God's heart, clearly, based on, based on what we read in Isaiah 66, just like Paul, God's heart and desire is for people to know and enjoy Him. He has sent His Son to die for them. Jesus is the sacrifice. So in love for Christ, how can we not seek to bring Him people as a thank offering? You know, worship and witness go together. Whenever God-glorifying worship is coming from our hearts in connection with the truth, it, it will inevitably overflow into our witness. Which is why I personally just fear the effects of consumerism on our worship. We can easily come to church for what God can give us. For what He can do for us. 
But worship is something we're to offer to God. Our joy is rooted in Him. And like anything you praise, you want people to share in it. And Lord willing, as we do this, people will. Our witness to others is, will be received by some and they'll, they'll join us here in our worship and that will only enhance our worship and result in even greater witness. This is the kind of work we're called to do. But our work is only going to be effective if God's the one working in it. Which brings us to the second way to work for gospel fruit. It's to rely on God's power for the work. Look at verse 17. Therefore I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. Paul's saying, look, here's the work that God has called me to do, he's given me to do, but I can't boast about it myself because it's really his power at work through me. He doesn't really talk about the work that he's doing as if he's partnering with God. He speaks about it more as if he's an instrument. God works through him, not with him. It's very interesting. I think the humility there is awesome. Paul's clearly one of the greatest theologians of his day we know of all time. And though he's leading a movement, he does not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished. It's Jesus doing the work through Paul. Verse 18, by word and deed. Both in the hearing and the seeing. The words explain the works, but the works dramatize the word. And in this case, his preaching was accompanied, verse 19, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. Now, the only other place that this phrase, miraculous signs and wonders, shows up in Paul's letters is in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And there he calls these things the marks of a true apostle. That's not to say that God can't do miracles today. We know that he does do miracles. And yet that doesn't mean that we should expect him to do it in the same way today or be discouraged if he doesn't. The, the, the chief purpose in Scripture, according to Hebrews 2.4, is to authenticate the unique ministry of the apostles. Because as, as God's laying down the foundation of the church, his, his power of miraculous signs and wonders is authenticating those that he's working through, the, the work that, the, that they're doing, confirming the word about Jesus. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We realize that you might not like everything that Paul says in his letters. But his words have been authenticated by God's Spirit through miraculous signs and wonders that you can read about. And so unless you're doing that, please don't be so quick to reject the Bible. After all, just just contemplate. How, How did a poor man like Paul shake the world upside down and undermine the most powerful empire? How do you explain a movement of thousands of followers fairly quickly when all the leaders of that movement were being killed for their faith? Well, Paul tells you right here, 
Christ was at work through their ministry by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. Now, that's a strange and. Because you assume that the miraculous signs and wonders were being done by the power of God's Spirit. So, John Stott helpfully points out that since this clause is separate from the reference to the power of signs and wonders, its meaning is likely to be different too. Physical miracles are not the only way in which the power of the Spirit is displayed. Indeed, his usual way is through the Word of God, which is his sword. It is he who takes our feeble human words and confirms them with his divine power in the minds, hearts, consciences, and wills of the hearers. Every conversion is a power encounter in which the Spirit, through the gospel, rescues and regenerates sinners. All throughout Romans, we actually see this connection between the power and the Spirit in the believer. So in Romans, we're empowered to live in a way that pleases God if we are led by the Spirit. The Spirit battles with the flesh to overcome sin. The Spirit dwells within us to produce the fruits of the Spirit. Joy comes from the Spirit. Love is a work of the Spirit. We serve God through the Spirit. We're liberated from the power of sin and death through the Spirit so that, the Spirit, that, so that through the Spirit we fulfill the requirement of the law. We put to death the works of the flesh by the Spirit. And it's by the power of the Spirit that we do gospel work, like Paul. We can see here by that, the repetition of that word power in verse 19, that that's where the emphasis is in these verses. It's on the work of God. And apparently instruments can be confused about where their power comes from. You know, it'd be silly for the flute, you know, to brag to the musician about what it can do when, when, it, when it can do nothing apart from the breath of the musician. It would be foolish for the flute to try and create sound on its own. It's an instrument, not the musician. And so, church, we need to know what we're responsible for in the work and where the power comes from. It's our job to preach the gospel, but none of us can change the heart. We can't make blind eyes see or deaf ears hear. That's done by the power of God alone. And if that's the case, well, there's there's no reason for boasting in the work. Unless we're boasting in God. Meaning, we're taking joy in what God has done. We're getting a lot of joy out of giving Him glory. That's what Paul's boasting in here. And so it's got to be the same for us. There's just no room for spiritual pride in our own lives or in the church. Like we say in our church covenant, we're relying on His gracious aid. That's why, again, we put such a strong emphasis on the word and prayer here. This will be the first thing that we pray for again tonight. Because we trust that it's His Spirit who's using His Word to bear fruit in our lives and in others. You know, we're not simply interested in attracting a crowd here on Sundays, you know, based on how cool of an experience that we might be able to create. We're dependent on God's Spirit to create and sanctify His people by His Word because we don't want a crowd, we want a church. So as we think about the work we're called to do in our own church, 
uh, from verse 14, to live lives that are full of goodness and instructing one another in the truth, let's be full of prayer. Let's be patient with one another. Since even the work within ourselves isn't something that we can just conjure up and and do in our own strength, but we're dependent on His, His gracious aid. You can't sanctify your brother or sister. It's the same case right now for me as I preach. You know, I'm a, I'm a powerless instrument on my own. And yet, we know that the Spirit uses His truth. And so we can speak the truth and love to one another, believing that He'll use that to build one another up in Christ. And that He'll do this for His glory. But that all depends on Christ. So we don't get proud when we see results. And we don't get depressed when they don't come right away. We're patient. And we're faithful. And so when you talk about Jesus with others, be bold for the same reason. Because you're doing God's work when you talk about Jesus. He's with you. And He has the power to soften and change hard hearts. Your responsibility is to speak the truth and love. And if anything happens, praise the Lord. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I pray that you'll experience God's work in you. And, you know, I, 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 I trust that that might be happening right now. Uh, maybe that's, that's why you, you find yourself interested in the things that are being taught here. And, and maybe that's the reason you keep coming back and you find yourself starting to believe. If that's the case, I just want to encourage you, lean into that. If God's working on you, I mean, if, if it's God, think about that. Don't resist Him. Lean in. Because it's, it's God. Uh, just pray, even now, God, help me believe. Or maybe you already have come to the place where you're like, I know this is true. But you're just having a hard time giving your life to, to living in, a, in accordance with this truth. Because it's costly. Okay, well just pray that. Just tell God, that's the way you, you feel. And, and, and pray, God, help me to do that. Save me from my sin. And if you're not there yet, I just want to encourage you to to keep coming anyway and to ask questions. Be curious and and thank for yourself in a world that that just wants you to think and live by your passions just like they do. Because if the Spirit will help you live by faith, then you'll actually live according to what God wants for you, which is Himself. And there's nothing greater that He can give you than Himself. You'll have fellowship with the Spirit. And you'll live by the Spirit. And that's what his power is for. I mean, notice that Paul doesn't mention needing the Spirit's power for an experience, like an emotional high. His purpose as a minister of Christ, verse 18, is to win the obedience of the Gentiles. That's what lines up with God's glory and promise. It's for the nations to bend their knee to Christ the King. This is part of what makes them an acceptable offering. It's not just people who say they believe, but actual real converts. The obedience of faith involves a heart that no longer raises its fists, but happily bows its knee. That's part of offering Gentiles to God. It's to do what Jesus said and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. The obedience of faith is part of the work 
of following Jesus and seeing it happen in others, helping the church do that, helping new disciples do that as part of the work God calls us to do. You know, so often I think we're, we're focusing on ourselves and our own walk with Christ, and that, that, is, that is right to be concerned with that. You know, hopefully we're also trying to share the gospel with others. But are you making disciples too? It's part of the work we're called to do. It's, it's part of the mission. So, so don't procrastinate and, and put off making disciples as if it's an option. Like, like that's extra. This is why we want to encourage everyone here to, to meet up with one another regularly, to read the bo- a, a book of the Bible or a book on the Bible as, as part of your regular service in the church. And not just meeting up formally like that, but to open up your lives and homes so that you're doing life together, so that you spend real amounts of time getting to know one another, so that you can speak timely words, so that you can pray specifically, so that you have the relational capital to give counsel and for it to be received or to give a rebuke, and it be received. We want to be a faithful church. And this is part of our offering. So if you want help doing this, if that sounds intimidating, I, I, I would say start with reading Discipling by Mark Dever and just asking someone here to, to talk about it with you. But that's not the only act of obedience that Paul's after. It's faithfulness to the mission. It's actually to do the work of spreading the gospel, which brings us to the final way to work for gospel fruit in the church and beyond. It's to be part of the work. Be part of the work. Look at the second half of verse 19. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. As a result, he's been called to the work, God's power is in the work, and as a result, here's the humble summary of about ten years of strenuous labor for Paul. Again, something that he may have boasted from, because this labor included strong opposition from outside the church, intense conflict inside the church. It meant persecution, imprisonment, and more than one, uh, more than one near-death experience. But here's what matters to him in the work. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Jerusalem was the starting point of the Christian mission. Illyricum is the furthest point to date. It was, it was north of Italy. And from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum and back, Paul has proclaimed the gospel and planted churches. But the work isn't done. It's still a task unfinished until the full number comes in when that last brick is added to God's new temple and Jesus comes back from his bride for his bride. Until that happens... The church is on mission with God. Which is why Paul's looking to this church in Rome in order to help him get to Spain. Because Christ hasn't been named there yet. That's Paul's missionary strategy. His aim is to preach where Christ hasn't been named yet so that he doesn't build on someone else's foundation. Now, what's he building? 
Well, again, remember, Christ is accomplishing his work through Paul. And Jesus said in Matthew 16 that he would build his church. And that tr- and the church is that, that new temple. It's where his spirit dwells on earth. And ultimately, it's the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, the city that comes down from heaven in the new creation is described in terms of people. God's saving people from all over the earth through the good news of Christ. And Paul's aim is to preach the good news where no one else has because he wants to be a part of that great building project. So why is this the strategy for that? Well, I see multiple reasons. Part of what Paul's communicating here and throughout his letters is the the urgency of this gospel work and the great need for the gospel work. But as an apostle, we also know that it's important for him to lay the gospel foundation for the long-term health and mission of the church. In Galatians 1.8, Paul tells a young church that if anyone comes behind him preaching a different gospel than what they first heard, even if it's an angel from heaven or him himself, they're to reject that guy because there is no other gospel. The message of forgiveness in Christ through faith alone is the only message that saves by the power of God. That's the message that God's blessing. And it's in the power of God that Paul's placing his confidence for the mission in places where he's never been preached. It's all based on God's word. He's grounding his missionary strategy here in Isaiah 52, 15. Right there in verse 21 here. He quotes the passage that we read earlier saying, Those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Isaiah 52, 15 refers to the surprise of the nations and their kings when they see God's suffering servant, the one that was rejected and despised, exalted as king. Paul's looking at a promise from God in his word. And he looks out where spiritually blind and deaf people are wandering around in the darkness of their sin. And he believes those are the kind of people that God said will see. Though they have not heard, they will understand. Because God has said so. And that's God's desire. That's why he's called us to the work. That's why his power's in the work. That's why we must do the work. The amazing power behind these verses is the assurance of success. The Bible tells us that we're all born spiritually dead in this world. And yet God's calling us out, calling us to go out and walk through the spiritual graveyard that this world is and preach to dead people. Spiritually dead people. Now, normally, you shouldn't be real confident talking to dead people. uh, And you shouldn't do that, especially when you can talk to the living God. But in this case, here's the miracle. Faith comes from hearing. So we should be very confident in speaking to spiritually dead people. Because God can use that message to bring life. And if you're a Christian, you know this to be true for yourself. Because this was the case with you. Unless you were so blessed to to grow up, never knowing a time where you didn't believe. But even then, you know this would be true for you. Had God not shown you His mercy so early. 
Paul has this missionary drive to preach the gospel where Christ isn't preached. To go out into all the world because the good news of redemption in Genesis 3.15 has always been for the whole world. And that's where Jesus said to go. Go to all nations. And so Paul's aim, his missionary strategy, fits God's aim. He's setting his sights on preaching the good news where God has placed the target. All nations. And that's where all history is headed. The promise of the new creation is that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will see the glory of the Lord. And from the furthest reaches of the earth, people will worship Christ. The offering that God desires, that He has promised, will come to fruition. And the one that we should seek as a church isn't just our own personal lives, though that's absolutely necessary. But it's to be engaged in the work of bringing to God an offering from every nation, every tribe and tongue. And so as a church, we're working on adopting this strategy. That's why we've partnered with Derek Bass at Tyndale Seminary to to reach the unreached. It's why we've begun a partnership with the Ministry of Good Churches who who are already in closed countries doing this work. We want to partner with them to to reach people who have not heard. And so we pray for the work. And and we give our money to the work. But guys, we must also do the work. This is the missionary life of every Christian. Pray, send, go, repeat. Repeat. Pray, send, go, repeat. And some of us go right where we're at in our own neighborhoods. Maybe in our own family. But some of us must be sent. We must go. And some of you might just be kids right now. Or teenagers. And I want you to listen to this. You should start praying now about whether or not God would call you to this work one day somewhere where he hasn't yet been made known. Make decisions now that fit with God's purpose for the world. And maybe that involves you going yourself one day. So you can think about learning a different language in school right now or staying out of debt as you get older so that debt doesn't keep you from doing this work. Maybe it means choosing a degree in college that can help you get into countries that won't normally let Christians come in. However old you are, the one thing that you can start doing right now for your future is praying about it. And if you're going to follow Jesus, then you need to be on mission somehow. Even if that looks like a more normal life that you see right now here in America, just working. So I want to speak to you college students as well. How are you thinking about your future? Do you need to pivot on your purpose or goals? Maybe it's just a heart pivot. You want to be a chef or doctor? Good. Be be a great one. God is glorified in that work. But you should also know how that work fits into this work. Because this is a task that God has given the church 
and you're a part of it. We might not have Paul's apostolic gifts or his specific calling as an apostle, but the work that he's most ambitious about involves evangelism and discipleship, and that's work that we can share in and get excited about. It might not be everything in your life as it was to Paul, but maybe it should be far more important to you than it is right now. It's some of the most important work that we can do in this world. So you should have some godly ambition towards your vocation. Godly ambition for your home. And it might not all be evangelistic. But given the work that God has called us to do, it should include a vision for evangelism. Because the task isn't done. Jesus is still building his church until that last brick is added and he returns. Which means there are still people right now today who don't see that will see. People who don't understand because he hasn't come back that will understand if they hear. And that reality needs to grip us. It needs to keep us from procrastinating or standing still. And so if it doesn't grip you, or if you feel like spiritual atrophy has set in and you're not doing the work as you once were, or if you are procrastinating and you haven't really committed yourself to the work as you know you should, just pray this morning. In this moment that we're about to have, after we're done singing and we're sitting quiet, pray that, that God would help you respond to this. By no longer procrastinating, but doing the work diligently. Pray that God would do this work in you. So that you can work for gospel fruit. And your own church. And beyond. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your spirit's work in us. We thank you for your word that he uses. And we pray that his power would be made known right now in us. We pray that he would cause some of us to believe and all of us to act. And we pray that he would do this for our good, for others' good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.